Well, concluding Psalm 71 this evening, and the title of the sermon is A Lifetime of Experience. Commented last time that David appears to have composed this psalm in his old age. And he reflects on his youth and how God has been with him right through that time. Now, when he is in a time of old age, he mentions that in verse 9. And he mentions about being grey-headed in verse 18. Now, we think it might be that this psalm was written on the occasion of the troubles that he suffered at the hands of Absalom. Can't know for sure, but it certainly would fit with that kind of experience. And he writes, doesn't he, out of the maturity of a long time of walking with God, that he knew his God, knew him well, and was able to think upon that, reflect on that, that as he cried out, and he had some things in his old age that he cried out, felt a deep, deep need, actually. But he did it out of an established relationship, one where he is able to say that it was God who's upheld him from his birth in verse 6 and took me out of my mother's womb. He knew God's care, God's help, and could reflect on it why from the moment of his birth. And so out of that established relationship, he's able to pray in his old age, able to think about what that means. Indeed, some of his worries, some of his fears, looking at himself, realizing what old age means. But he has hope for the future. And he looks forward to praising God more and more of being able to go in the strength of the Lord in verse 16. In his mouth, telling the righteousness of God, verse 15. Well, our first heading tonight is this, fears and duties of old age. Fears and duties of old age. Because he has some concerns, concerns about himself, as he surveys who he now is, or who he once was, but is no more. That youthful vigour, that energy that he once had and now he does not not least in the same proportions he is aware of that and he pleads with god verse 9 do not cast me off in the time of old age do not forsake me when my strength fails and again that sense of wonder at god verse 18 also when i'm old and gray-headed oh god do not forsake me. And he's got something he wants to do before he feels that he, he might be left. And maybe we understand that as being when he draws his last breath, when God, in terms of upholding his life on earth, withdraws from him. But he wants to be able to do something. Got a duty, he feels, that he must perform before that time comes. And he pleads with God, he implores God, spare me until that moment is reached. But he knows what old age is doing to him, and he knows that his strength is not as it once was. His strength is failing him. Physical strength, not able to do as much as once he did, needing to rest more often. Maybe his mental strength 
not quite as sharp as he was, not quite so quick to appreciate things, perhaps feeling a little more out of touch with the world in which he is, that his, his world has, has declined, it's shrunk a little bit, his contacts, why many of them perhaps already died. And he feels himself more and more isolated in that way, vulnerable, more frail, prone to injuries and sicknesses and just frailties of old age, feeling maybe they're alienated from some of his children. And if it's Absalom that is in view in this, well, most certainly. Other friends and other family members, no longer there, a little more isolated and feeling perhaps a little more weak as a result of that, that their help is not there, their encouragements are not theirs once they were. And in other places, he remembers, doesn't he, there, his own parents. They're not there. Maybe a little bit of nostalgia and casting his mind back and thinking about what he would wish that he could receive by way of human comfort now. Those people are no longer here. And as he feels his frailty, he thinks the unthinkable. What if God should forsake him? What if... He should be left with this weakness and this frailty. And he fears that and he prays out of that, that as he might feel there that his usefulness, which once was considerable, is now declining, that his best days are behind him. Will God perhaps have less interest in him? Forsake him in that way. Some of the comforts and some of the joys that he had are those going to evaporate? Are they going to dry up? Is he not going to have the strength to appreciate them? The mind that once could kind of draw around them and, and take these things in, that it's going to feel as if he's forsaken, that help that he'd relied upon. And in this time of weakness, suddenly aware of his frailty, aware all the more of actually his need of God, his dependence, and pleads with God. And in whatever sense he was feeling it, not understanding it there, that he should not be cast off, that he should not be forsaken. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Remember now, your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return, after the rain, the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim. Diminishing world and a world that no longer has the pleasure that once it did because you haven't got the strength to be able to engage in those things, go out for those walks, take in that scenery, experience those particular joys. And everything looks a little paler. And the sounds, particularly if you're getting deaf, are more and more difficult to discern. Well, we know that uh, Jacob and Rebecca were able to exploit Isaac's declining faculties when he was blind and uh, fooling him. That uh, uh, there, Jacob, who was playing at being Esau and able to receive the blessing, which really was his to have, but not by this means. And, uh, Isaac trembled when he realized that he'd been fooled. His own frailty, folly perhaps then, a little lack of 
spiritual thinking on on his part, that he should have been thinking more of Esau when he should really have been thinking of Jacob in the first place. And ends up having this trick played on him. Jacob disguises himself there at his mother's bidding, it should be said, uh, as Esau. Yes, old age. Very easier to be fooled. Our thinking isn't as sharp. Our vision and our hearing are impaired. And David feels that, compares himself to what he was, and pleads with God. I'm going to need you all the way. I'm going to need you, in fact, even more for my old age there. I'm relying upon you. I'm dependent upon you. I haven't got the the vigor and the, the energy that once I had, those things that I was able to do and not give a moment's thought to, not a second thought to them. Now they need planning out. Now they need a lot more thought and attention given. Small things that I just didn't even consider. Because now they're like mountains to climb. Then he pleads that God will not withdraw his help from him. But he's aware, isn't he, throughout this, that God is there for him, as he will be there for, for all of us, if we consider we've reached a old age or older age, or maybe some of us there can say that that uh, joy is beginning to dawn upon them and uh, they're moving steadily towards it. But the God will be there, just as he's able to say that, verse 17, God, you've taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. You've taught me ever since I was a youth, when first I knew you, and first I came to that understanding, put my faith in you. And that day, well, I've just been learning ever since. And he could well believe that that God, that same God, will be with him, that he'll be able to declare his wondrous works ongoing, that his mouth will be able to tell of his righteousness and salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. I've not yet found your promises to be exhausted. And in old age, I believe they'll hold me firm then, and they'll work, and you will be to me still the same, my strength and my shield, my rock and my fortress. And he looks on to that. And He's seen much of God's goodness. Verse 20, he's he's seen it through great troubles. He's lived long enough and he's living perhaps now in time to see great and severe troubles. But he also knows that God has the power to revive him again, bringing up again from the depths of the earth. Figuratively there, when it looked as if he was dead and buried, Absalom at one point must have thought that he had his father, had him in his hand, as it were, to just destroy him. Yet, no, he's come back and looks forward indeed to actually his greatness being increased and being comforted on every side. He's got concern. He's urgent. He feels his need of God and pleads with God, don't forsake me. But he trusts him, knows that no, God won't forsake me. And he'll comfort me on every side. I will find his peace. I'll find his help in all the things, everything. And even when I come to death itself. So he has a lifetime of experience, doesn't he? Lifetime of experience. And though he trembles a little as old age advances and he feels its effects upon himself more and more, but he wants to remain faithful to his calling. And that calling he recognizes in his old age is a calling and a duty towards the younger people, towards 
this generation. Verse 18, at the end of that, he wants to declare the strength of God, God's power to carry you through, to revive you, to bring you through severe troubles. And he wants to talk to the generation coming up about that. There's power to everyone who is to come, to a beginning in life, who themselves are perhaps beginning to be taught in their youth about God, but don't have a lifetime experience. How could they? They've not lived it yet. David has. And he's able to think, I want to use that experience and teach the young. I want them to know how great God is. I want them to know how God brought me through severe troubles and trials. That's that's where you find him the most. That's where you need to cling to him. Use the time there, the days of your youth. Know your creator. Find him and grow in him then. So when those days of trouble come, you know the God you're falling back upon. You know the one to whom you're crying out for help. And that is what he wants to do. And there in Titus and chapter 2, the, the duties there, part were given to Titus, an elder, in the church in Crete. But there are things for each different group within the church, talking in generalities there, but for older people, younger people, what the older men are to do, Titus 2, verse 2, they be sober, reverent, and temperate, and sound in faith, in love, in patience. That suggests there, doesn't it, that older men can do some pretty foolish things. They can behave rather foolishly in their old age. Well, they're to be taught no don't. Be sober. Be temperate. Don't give yourself to crazy things. Be sound in faith, in love, in patience, enduring with the afflictions of old age. Because then out of that, they can teach younger people. They can show what it means to be temperate and to be sober and sound in faith. Because they've got a lifetime of experience of that to share. And older women, likewise, something for them to know. Be reverent in behavior. Slanderers, given to much wine. Teachers of good things. That's not to say that the men shouldn't be teachers of good things. But here Paul singles out the women folk to be teachers of good things. To be just as with David there who wants to declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. To admonish the young women, love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers. And so the exhortations continue. They're there to declare things to younger women, to advise them, exhort them out of their own fund of experience, their own lifetime of walking with God, such it be. So there are duties of old age, and David is pleading with God that he shouldn't come, as it were, to a premature end until he's fulfilled what he feels is that duty to the younger generation to tell them about this God, about his power, about his strength, how he can be with you in troubles, to learn that patience of waiting, to be sound in faith and in love, to hold fast to him. The younger women folk there to bear with their marriages and their husbands who can at times be a grief and a pain, but to obedient to them, to love them. And all of this out of their experience, their own experience of being married, yes, but being godly wives. And out of that, they can teach younger women. So fears about old age, 
But David is also aware of the duties of old age. And he wants to be able to continue them. And he wants God not just to give him a kind of peaceful time and a happy time and all the rest of it there and just enjoy whatever hobbies he's got, if you will, but to be able to teach the young, to pour out himself in giving admonition to those who are following him. Second heading, a resolve to praise. Well, that's often here, isn't it, in the Psalms, and it's here with us in this Psalm. We had reason to mention it on quite a few occasions, but it's just to bring our attention to it again. And we we see him often speaking in that way of resolve, that I will. How many times he says, I will, there in verse 14. It's there in verse 16. It's there in verse 22, or I shall. That's verse 15, verse 23, verse 24. There's a resolve, a resolve to praise. Whatever aspect of salvation it is that's on his mind, he will. And he talks about speaking. He's going to speak of these things in verse 15, verse 16, verse 24. But he's going to do singing too. Verse 14, verses 22 to 23. Again, just to dwell a moment longer on that aspect, a distinctive aspect of sung praise. What we do, the hymns that we sing when we take up our hymn books and sing our praises to God. The variety of praises we sing, the thanksgivings, some we focus on, the Father, some on the Son, some on the Holy Spirit or the Bible, our experience of salvation, our need of repentance and humbling. Why a host of things that we sing. And in that, we are showing how earnest we are and how we're engaging well, that part of us there, which is engaged when we sing. There's something more to singing than perhaps there is to speaking in that way. when We express it back to God. So we are to sing deeper expression, fuller exercise of the soul. And what are we to express? Well, not nothing's said of so many modern worship songs. They're very vapid. There's not much in them. Not much there by way of weighty themes. Well, David has weighty themes that he is going to speak of. And, well, he talks of righteousness. God's righteousness speaks of it in verse 15, verse 19, verse 24. God is upright, that he's fair, that he's just, and that he's loyal, loyal to his promises, that he has integrity, because David's experienced that. He is no man's debtor. David can attest to that. He is unlike any other. He reflects on that, doesn't he, there in verse 19, oh God, who is like you? done great things and your righteousness is very high. Just as he can speak about not knowing the limits of God's salvation. So of his righteousness, just how upright God is and in how many situations he will give evidence of that. Well, David says this is very high. There's no limit to this. It's out of my view. And he speaks of that, worships, reflecting upon that. God is just. Is upright. God does no wickedness. God is fair in all of his dealings. Well, you might say that some of that's missing from much of what's called modern worship, and I figure that it is. Or it speaks to the faithfulness of God. 
This, uh, again, there is with us. Things about his old age, but things about how God's been with him from his youth. Faithfulness. And it's there in verse 22. He's going to praise God with the lute. There's the music in this. And he's going to praise God for his faithfulness. That's a theme that's often there in the Psalms. Psalm 89, verse 2, just to pick up on a few illustrations of it. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. Movable and unchangeable. That these are solid attributes that do not permit of change. Or Psalm 92, and again verse 2. Verse, here is our duty to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Faithfulness because we've had another day of experiencing the faithfulness of God. True to his promises, true to his weak and stumbling people. We complete another day, don't we, there and reflect on the kindness of God. Prayers that have been answered, things that occurred to us, things we learned, things we saw. And that we can reflect back to him, his faithfulness at night. Or in Psalm 145, verse 7, tells us there that we shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Faithfulness of God, his kindness, his righteousness. Well, that's the substance of our worship. Those kinds of things. His covenant that he's made with us through his son, the promise of salvation through the blood of his son. Do we doubt it? Well, there is the blood that is shed to make it happen, to make us to be his people, to fulfill all the conditions and all the requirements. All of it's on God's side, isn't it? That he provided the saviour and he in faithfulness there gave us one who is to be trusted and relied upon. Salvation he speaks of, there's a great theme it's there with us in verse 15 of Psalm 71. Redemption. Verse 23. My soul which you have redeemed. We once were slaves, weren't we, of sin? And we had no way back. We were helpless. We had no price that we could offer for our deliverance. The price was too great. It was our life. It was forfeit. It was gone. We couldn't pay with that. We were perishing sinners. But then Christ paid it and redeemed his people. So from out from under the penalty of the Lord, it's convicting hold upon us. It's imprisoning grip upon us. Law couldn't save us, had nothing within itself that it could give. That's where mercy came to our aid. And the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed his people. And he revives and he comforts as verse 20 and verse uh, 21 tell us. He, unlike any other comes to the bruised reeds and those smoldering flaxes, brings them back to strength, brings them back to life, redeems us from hopelessness, helplessness, weakness, utter despair. And that is matter plenty there for us to praise him in. We remember who he is. We remember what a difference it's made to us, redeeming us. And out of that, we praise him. And there's always more for us to praise him in. Verse 14, David doesn't see this ending anytime soon. This is going to outlive him. The reasons for praising God and will praise you yet more and more. Because I'm going to know more and more of what this redemption is. I'm going to see 
further evidences of your faithfulness and your righteousness. I'm going to know this. My hope is continually in you because I know your character. And out of that, I will have yet more and more reasons to praise you, to tell of your righteousness and salvation all the day because he's confident he's never ever going to exhaust those things. So he speaks of rejoicing and it's heartfelt, isn't it? But this isn't laboured rejoicing, if it could be such a thing. But this comes from a heart that is aflame with love, that is touched with grace, and where praise comes very, very easily, very naturally to his lips. But I finish my third heading, and again we've had this considerably before us, an expectation of justice, an expectation of justice. And uh, he sees there at the end those who are confounded and brought to shame who seek my hurt. End of verse 24. And he's longed for that to happen there in verse 13. Let them be confounded. Let them be baffled, perplexed. Let them not get what they desire to, to bring upon me. Be consumed to our adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. Though we are to love our enemies, we know about justice. And we believe those words, that people do not repent, then they will feel the justice of God. Why indeed, nothing makes any sense at all, unless God is going to punish evil doing, and with it, evil doers. Think back to our own conversion. Well, we were led to flee, were we not, from the wrath to come. And why do we believe there was wrath to come? Well, we believe that God is going to judge sinners. And we believe he's going to judge us. And the realization of that was very sobering, wasn't it? And we fled to Christ for refuge. We came to him. We knew that we needed to come to him because there was a day coming and we were totally exposed because in our own heart we had found sin. And we were convicted of that sin. And we knew that we were undone. Justice. We believed in justice. We believed in God's justice. There's some justice at that. It wasn't just in a general sense, but got down to the minutiae. Every word, every intention of the heart, every inclination of it, weighed in his just balances and found wanting there. And we knew that we had no voice, we had nothing we could bring to this, nothing we could do to change God's opinion somehow and press him with something. We were finished, we were ruined. And that's where Christ, of course, was very, very precious to us. And the cross would make no sense at all if it was not that there was justice, that God had given to us and warned us of impending wrath and the doom of the sinner to flee to Christ for refuge. And the cross would have no relevance, wouldn't make any sense, unless it was showing us, among other things, that God will punish sin. He's showing that this is what I will do. And unless you believe that I am punishing your sin through Jesus Christ, that he is your saviour, your redeemer, your mediator, then there's no other place, because justice will therefore be brought down upon you. If you will not accept my son in your place, bearing the cost and the price of evil doing, 
my justice brought upon him. That's some justice. And we can see the pain that it was to him, what it brought, what punishment will look like. There it is. There it is in our Savior and in his dying. That's justice. Well, we see his mercy too. But all of this speaks to us of justice. And nothing of this will make any sense at all unless God one day is going to punish sin. And he'll either punish the sinner or he will punish his son on behalf of the sinner. And there are no alternatives to that. And we're thankful, aren't we, friends, that we saw that and realized that and saw that what the Lord Jesus was doing upon the cross centuries earlier had a huge relevance to us wherever it found us in the 20th century or wherever. And we realized that there's our hope. And it was. And we saw that. And we were so, so deeply impressed that God should have had mercy there in his son and invited us to come and believe. And we believed and how we believed and how glad we were to come to him. Well, there's that or it is judgment to come. It is those who are confounded and brought to shame. Those who sought maybe your hurt and my hurt, who tried to injure the cause of Christ, this church, any other church, and who tried to bring into disrepute what God is doing. Well, there is shame and there is embarrassment. There's confusion of face because it's all exposed. And it's all there for plain inspection. No hiding place. We have we trusted in Christ, we're hiding, hiding in him. Our life is hidden in Christ in God. But for these not, they're not hidden in him, they're exposed. And so all that David here is speaking of is really just reiterating what will happen, that God will bring justice. He's upright, he's righteous. That's what David has been thinking about in his praises. And it means, therefore, that he will cover them with reproach and dishonor that he will confound and consume those who are adversaries of the Lord's people. So sobering things. And David has a lifetime of experience in which that's been the theme of his reflections, his considerations, his worship, and his expectations for the future. So we'll come to complete actually just this, this section of the book of Psalms in a three weeks or so's time when we come to Psalm 72, where the theme changes and the matter before us is is changing again. Psalms always bring us, don't they, variety. They give us a, a full-orbed spiritual life, the things that are ours to reflect upon. And we'll see that in Psalm 72, it's very much the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that fills our horizon. So God willing, we'll come to that in a few weeks' time.